So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. In the psychedelic space, psilocybin is now becoming legalized medically, which is mushrooms, which is now becoming legalized medically for the reversal of PTSD. And it's legal in Canada and it's legal in, 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 in many parts of the United States through, through clinics and through prescriptions. Ayahuasca going down to Costa Rica or, or Peru to, to drink that plant medicine that re-engineers and, and the, 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 the subconscious. You know, once you get people out of these situations, these are the things that I can think of. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got another one of my favorite authors who I've been reading their books for over a decade, Keith Ferrazzi. Thanks for doing this. Jess, it's fun. Thanks. You want to give me another? Who, 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 I just want to know what list I'm, I'm within. You know, we had Steve Blank on the show recently. We've had Joe Paluzzi. Do you know the Content Marketing Institute? Yep. We've had, you know, we've had 600 episodes. So it's it's given me a chance to to have a lot of a lot of my favorite authors on. It's, uh, it's really I'm, been I'm just fun joking. I'm in, I'm in good company. I saw the list. <laughs> so can you give people the, the quick overview on on your businesses, on your books? And then I've got a bunch of specific questions. Sure. Happy to. So I started in my writing career a number of years ago, writing a book called Never Eat Alone. And it was really about how a poor kid from Pittsburgh got to become one of the youngest officers in a Fortune 500 company. You know, what was that leap from being a caddy at the Latrobe Country Club to Yale and Harvard and all the success that I had? And it really all boiled down to a simple formula. And that is that opportunity is created through relationships. And those relationships aren't transactional. They're authentic, they're generous, and you have to lead with generosity to move in this world. And the further up the ladder you climb, the more authentic and generous one needs to be if you don't have things like nepotism and other things at your back. So how do you create your own future? And that was Never Eat Alone. And it really put me on the map in terms of giving me permission to share my thoughts with the world. I then went to study relationships at another level, and I started studying how important were the depth of relationships. You know, you think about networking as the broadest relationships in our lives, and how do we curate them, and what systems do we put together to, to maintain them? But then I wanted to know about those most intimate relationships. And our research showed that the three most important relationships in your life are predictive of your success. And do they really, in the book was called, who's got your back? Do they really have your back? And how do you build a relationship that has that intimacy, that connectivity, but also that butt kicking accountability, that level of candor in your life, because you can't survive without it. Now, all along, I was writing these books 
they were almost a parallel to what I was doing professionally. So I built a firm over 20 years ago, focused on helping organizations align human behavior to growth. And what we do is we coach teams. We coach executive teams. We go into an organization, my partners and I, and I've got six coaching partners in my organization and, and scaling, bringing on more. And we coach the largest organizations in the world like Delta Airlines and, and CVS and Verizon and, and Mary Barra, General Motors and that executive team through massive transformations. But we also coach the unicorn companies, the fastest growth companies and newly started venture companies that we really believe in. So our job, we believe that, that transforming teams will transform the world. And, and that, that vision came to me when I was working with coaching the teams at the World Bank, where their mission is the eradication of poverty in the world. And I saw that by helping the interdependencies of the World Bank, you could actually accelerate their capacity to bring water and food to impoverished countries all over the world, where, where there's a word that I created, which is at the essence of what I believe all of us needs more of. The word is co-elevation. In the core, at the essence of every relationship you have, your marriage, your children, your best friends, your team for sure, that team has to have a mutual commitment to going higher together, right? And there are elements of that that I always bring up, which is you know, a strong foundation of intimacy and vulnerability and, and commitment to be of service. But based on that foundation of relationship, you then have the permission for butt-kicking candor, true accountability, which, which yields high-performing growth in all of our lives, whether it's personally or professionally. And I've applied that to my spousal relationships. I have applied, and I say relationships, I'm not a polygamist. I'm just applying that. I, I was married and then, then single, and now I am in another relationship today, which very excitedly is a co-elevating relationship. I've applied it to the, the growth of my boys, you know, and I've got two foster children and three other adopted boys. And, you know, being, being a father is very important to me. And, and being a co-elevating father is something I've had to learn how to do. So I'm going to pause for a second, Jess, and let you take all that in. And, and sorry for the, sorry for the, tumps of the stump speech there for you. No, I like it. I'm just on coelevation.com right now, looking, looking through what you guys have got there. And I recommend everyone else do the same thing. So I think my first question is, when you think about this idea of, of genuinely embracing the team mentality, and it's funny because, you know, I've, I've been hearing that my, my whole career, you know, team, 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 it gets used so much, it, it almost doesn't mean anything. You know, it, it can feel like a, a euphemism, it can feel like all these things. And yet, I think more so in the last few years than ever before, things like Reed Hastings book, the, the CEO of Netflix talking about like, hey, we treat this like a pro sports team, like, we we push like we need top level performance if we're going to win an Oscar like this isn't like you can't just mail it in right we got to have the right people there and and I think about like you know we've had a lot of folks on the show from Naval Special Warfare and from the classified units of Army Special Forces and uh, you know I've been lucky enough to have those guys as volunteers at our charity and employees and clients and and got to spend a lot of time there and it's funny because all the cliche things are actually true with those guys in ways that I didn't necessarily see when I was at Citigroup or some other of my, my corporate jobs previous to being an entrepreneur, right? And including the thing that you just brought up about candor, like, you know, <clears throat> there is, I, I feel like I suffer, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. I feel like I suffer from something a lot of my friends suffer from, which is I, I want the badge is like just the nice boss, right? So I don't always give 
staff all the feedback that they probably need to succeed. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't have a great habit of the radical candor, the, the, you know, the, the butt kicking, like, Hey, our, you know, your coworkers, our clients, all of us need more from you. This is what it's going to take. And under like the guise of being the nice guy, you know, I, I know that's something I'm actively working on. And I, I wonder if I ha- could get any advice from you on it. Yeah. So I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal a bit ago about the quandary with being a manager in the world today. And I say a manager, meaning a leader at a lower level of an organization, somewhere in the middle of an organization. The, the reality is that we are stressed for the time and the competencies to be the kind of coaches and leaders and managers that our bosses were when we were younger, meaning that we have flattened organizations, organizational demands have increased significantly. And as a result, there's there's more of a reliance on the need for coaching, the need for feedback, the need for you know accountability, the need for uh, a boost of innovation, all of those things are more in demand than ever before. In my past, I would get those from my boss when I was growing up at Deloitte, where I ended up being the the CMO there, or Starwood, where I was running sales and marketing at Starwood. With today, my recommendation to you, Jess, is that you sit with your team and you do something that we do when we take a team through a transformation, that you do something called a recontracting. Now, if you go to coelevation.com, you can see the eight categories of recontracting. There's a diagnostic tool there that it's actually a 22 question diagnostic, but we just put out a simple eight. And I just, what I would like you to do is I'd like you to grab that diagnostic tool and I would like you to take a look at it, but then I'd like you to sit down with your team and I'd like you to go through that diagnostic tool with your team. One of the questions is basically something like, you know, are we committed to speaking candidly in the room, even when it's risky to do so or outside of our swim lanes? Now it's we, it's not you. So you, you asked me a question about how do you be a harder, more driven, more accountable, more candid boss? Well, part of the answer is not you. It's how do we co-elevation. And when leaders commit to recontracting for co-elevation in their teams, they're asking their teams to step up to meet them. And what we have found is that when we're coaching teams, that leader ends up freeing about 30% of their time. By the way, this is not going to give you the abdication of doing the things you just talked about, but it is going to give you permission because you now as a team have a verbal contract that you will do it. So if you have a verbal contract or recontracting, where as a team, we say, we will give each other feedback. And by the way, that's a different one, which is our team is as is actively committing to peer-to-peer coaching of one another. That is not a part of your contract today, Jess. I guarantee you, your team doesn't walk in the room thinking that they have to give each other feedback. That's not in their mindset. That's that's a that's not a contract of the old work world. But in the new work world, we don't damn it have a time to wait until Jess gets around to giving the feedback. Sometimes Jess doesn't even see the interaction that's calling for the feedback because that's actually happening outside of his purview in another meeting, right? We need to have a contract that we're going to own each other's feedback. We need to have a contract that we're going to be candid in the room. And then once you have that contract, then you can hold people accountable to that contract. Now, you need to add something to that, which is called a high return practice. So I'll give you a for instance, on this candor piece, now we're going to do something called a candor break. In the middle of your meetings, Jess, I want you to have an agenda item that just says candor break. And in the middle of your meeting, you're going to stop with your meeting and you're going to say, okay, I'm just checking in what's not being said that should be said. Now you're going to hear crickets. 
So fine, you're gonna push a button and you're gonna go to breakout rooms and you're gonna go to breakout rooms of two and you're gonna ask everybody to open a Google Doc. And in that Google Doc, you're gonna ask everybody to answer that question in groups of two, putting in there, what's not being shared that needs to be shared? And they will be forced now as an assignment with integrity to answer this question as opposed to, do you have the balls to actually share it in the meeting? No, you don't. People are conflict avoidant. They don't have the permission. If they spoke up, they'd be throwing each other under the bus. There's all this old that exists from years of wrongheaded thinking about what a team should be and how a team should behave. By the way, what I'm talking about is the same mindset that founders have with each other. Founders don't even think about sharing candidly with each other. But the problem is, is these unicorns, I mean, I coach a lot of unicorn companies. As these companies grow from founder status through to scale, they lose. They lose this commitment to be founders. And the founder culture does not exist. The one, the one place I can say still has it is Amazon. Now, here's the problem with Amazon, if you care. And, and I love Jeff and I love Andy. I mean, truly, some of the best leaders, the best leaders I've ever met in the world, period. But the founder group had the relationship. Jeff, Andy, and Jeff. Jeff Wilkie, Andy Jassy, and Jeff Bezos. They had that relationship with each other. They had that social permission. They had that resilience built in. They could be candid. They could be hard driving. The problem is, as you scale down an organization, if you're not building the relationship alongside the permission for candor, it can feel eviscerating. And I believe that's why Amazon got some of their bad press in the New York Times and other things, because they're not, they're, they're not a particularly relational culture, but they are a highly accountable culture. And that's why they're winning. You will win as a highly accountable culture. You will win from a highly candid culture. Oracle is like that. Microsoft in the old days was like that. You will win with candor and accountability. It may not be a pleasant place to work, but you will win. But you will lose people who aren't resilient and aren't, aren't braced for this kind of candor and culture. So what happens is then in order to be able to have the candor and culture, you also have to work on the relationships, which means in that same meeting, you start it with something called a check-in where everybody goes around briefly and shares, what's what are you struggling with these days? What's going on right now? And that would give me an opportunity at the beginning of a meeting to say something like, you know, my son, my, my older stepson, who's now 27, is in rehab right now. And I'm struggling. First of all, I'm so blessed that he's 48 days sober, but I am struggling with the fact that I have a mindset about him that is is basically informed by 10 years of struggling with this young boy. I got him at 16. And for 10 years, I have developed a perspective on what do I expect from him? And as a father with him in rehab, I'm struggling with wiping that slate totally clean and starting fresh. So anyway, I mean, I would, I would share something like that. Now yeah. empathy is built. So you, know, you want candor, contract it, put process and practice into place and proactively build relationships that give permission to it. You know, I feel like that proactive part, it's like the guts to go first, you know, by the way, I have newfound respect for both foster parents and adoptive parents. We, we just did a mini series with the orphan myth campaign. We recorded maybe a dozen episodes with folks who are working both domestically and around the world to get kids out of, you know, institutionalized situations out of orphanages and into forever families. And it's been really eye-opening to interview these folks from the UK and the US and all over. And if you could you know, do me a favor, introduce me to them. My foundation focuses on extracting kids from foster care into permanency. Oh yeah, for sure. My uh, and it's a wonderful, a wonderful charity in Los Angeles called Kids Save. And then I've created a an augmentation of that in Colorado with the former governor Hickenlooper. No, it's it's great. Yeah, they they have really done so my one business partner in the investment fund, Lindsay Hadley, she's got this great company called Hadley Impact where she advises 
you know, celebrities and billionaires on their charities, but she put together this meta campaign. So they got a whole bunch of the organizations in the space already. And, you know, Hugh Jackman's wife at Hopeland and all these great organizations. So it's, it's nice to kind of see the strength and numbers happening there. It's super, I'm, I'm excited to get you connected with them, but please do. But on the, you know, on the rehab stuff too, you know, like we, you know, and my wife and I's family, we've got, you know, a number of family members who've been through that same situation. And, and, you know, my, you know, our listeners know about my wife's background and, and unfortunately coming from multiple generations of, of trafficking. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of substance abuse, a lot of just all sorts of abuse in that and in and out of jail. And, and, you know, very, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things about my wife's background that you can't put in rated R movies. I mean, like that stuff is rough, right? And yet I see that go on to like, you know, my mother-in-law, she raises, you know, her kids turn out to be a dentist, two business owners. Her, her fourth child is happily married with two kids. She's got like 12 grandkids. She eventually, she eventually married a nice man and they were married for 22 years until he passed away from cancer a handful of years ago, my father-in-law. And she ended up kind of with the American dream in the end, many aspects of it. And that kind of, it really came from empathy and people caring. And, and that relational aspect is, is what gets people to eventually make really happy I, lives. I have a, a dear friend of mine, like a sister to me. Her name is uh, Shadi Bastani. And Shadi is a, as a therapist of sexual trauma. And I talked to her about her work. It is so horrific to deal with the long-term psychological implications of that kind of abuse. I see it, neither of my boys had sexual trauma associated with their upbringing, but they certainly had physical and emotional abandonment and trauma associated with their upbringing. They had been in 21 homes before they came into our home, before the age of 12, the younger one, and, and orphanages. And even the, they call them group homes, but it's basically an orphanage. And reversing that damage is a lifelong journey. And it's interesting because I myself, <clears throat> I've had nothing approximating that kind of <clears throat> challenge in my early adolescence, but I still have trauma that I am, I'm processing in my life. And, you know, it's, it, I, I'm curious, Jess, I, I, will, I will share with you, and I'm not sure what your opinion is on this, but I will share with you my pathway. I mean, I've had therapy, I've had coaching, I've, I, know, I have what I call the top 10 emotional interventions, you know, going to a 10-day silent meditation retreat called Vipassana which has got to be on the top of the list and bringing meditation into your life is so crucial for mental well-being, having a meditative practice. I'm doing some research right now with Headspace and Cece, who's their CEO over there on that subject. A Landmark, which is a derivation of that, you know, crazy EST program back in the 70s, but Landmark and what it does for you in, in neuro-linguistic programming. And even Tony Robbins, who's a dear friend of mine and some of the work he does, therapy and coaching, right? Al-Anon, using the 12-step methodology. The Dalai Lama says that the 12-step methodology is the, is the greatest gift that God gave humanity in the last 200 years. And that's part of what I wrote. I mean, based, based on AA and some of the 12-step programs, that's part of what I wrote, who's got your back? How do you create a group that won't let you fail? Similar to what an AA program would be. I kind of call that book 12 Steps for the Rest of Us. And plant medicine, today. There's a, there's a huge burgeoning medical community around PTSD in the psychedelic space. Psilocybin is now becoming legalized medically, which is mushrooms. 
which is now becoming legalized medically for the reversal of PTSD. And it's legal in Canada and it's legal in, 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 in many parts of the United States through, through clinics and through prescriptions. Ayahuasca, you know, going down to Costa Rica or, or Peru to, to drink that plant medicine that re-engineers and, and the, 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 the subconscious. You know, once you get people out of these situations, these are the things that I could think of that could truly bring us into equilibrium and and peace and happiness and love and serenity and forgiveness. I'm curious what some of your other guests have shared that they've used. This is the formula that I've come up with and that I actively work myself. You know, maybe one that I'll I'll add to your list. But I'm sorry, the other one is religion. I'm spiritual and my, you know, I have, I don't know if you can see it back there, but Faith is is an important part for for me. But go you know, ahead. I'll say that's probably been the number one for me. You know, I feel like it's almost become like politically incorrect that we're religious these days, which I think is a shame because I feel like it's been one of the biggest benefits of my life. And I have I have so many private conversations with guests, like guys who are you know Fortune five hundred company CEOs, fifty billion dollar companies. And then off the show, they're much more open about how, what, a, what a great blessing faith has been, like how it's really helped them through the tough times and stuff. But yeah. it's like in the guise of not pushing our faith on people, it's almost like we, we like have quit even acknowledging that we have our own faiths, you know, which, which, yeah, I love it. A tight screenshot here. Normally it's in the background of all of my, <laughs> my podcasts. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I think, you know, I think the issue you know, it's still interesting. I don't think a president could be elected without talking about God, right? So I think that's interesting still. But I don't think I don't think a lot of corporate executives could get promoted if they talked about God very much. Uh, I, I don't. I wish it wasn't that way, but I think there's I a think lot of like. I don't, well, really? you say very. Okay. Okay. I, I, I think it's important. I certainly think it's important to give people their own choice. And to not be perceived as prejudicial associated with other people. And so people are very sensitive today on lots of issues on what they believe. The 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 dogma. Well, let me let me say this. First of all, I want to go back to the point of <clears throat> there's religion, of course, and there's and there's faith. And you know, the religion is the adoption of a distinct doctrine associated with your deity and and how that's interpreted divinely through the transmission of books and and humans. And I don't think there's any question. I mean, I always had this problem growing up, which is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I grew up uh, Methodist and Catholic. My mom was Methodist. My dad was Catholic. And, you know, it's funny because back in the day when I grew up, there were, you know, there were, there were members of the Catholic faith, not as much that I remember Methodist, but certainly members of the Catholic faith that actually believed that the pathway to heaven was... Catholicism, right? And I, I think I, I don't know. I think it'd be hard pressed for for many Christians to claim that the path, the only pathway to their faith, is their distinct religious methodology, right? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm stepping out for your faith too far into on the limb, but I certainly never believed that because I didn't believe my mom was going to hell. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, alternatively believe my father would, although the Catholics had this little purgatory thing that you could sit for a while and, and wait. And then as I grew up and I, you know, I went to Yale University and I met, you know, well, not even then, my, my prep school where I met Jews and, and Muslims and Buddhists. 
I also didn't quite understand, you know, how good people couldn't thrive in the afterworld and couldn't dissolve into the same energy that I'm going to dissolve into with, with, you know, with bliss. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching my religious doctrine today to you, which has become quite agnostic. I know I always joke, you know, I, I, I'm committed to the one who brought me, meaning I grew up in Christianity and I'm committed to my Christianity. And when I, when I've got my, when I go into a spiritual journey or a deep meditation, I've got my cross in my hand, but you know, I also have my Buddha because it's interesting as I've studied Buddhism, Buddha never wanted to be a deity. Buddha just said to people, there is this act of, of getting you closer to spirituality called meditation. And you should follow this act, the Dharma. And along the way, he was deitized, which, you know, understandably, he's a pretty good dude. And people are like, wow, this guy's, this guy's amazing. So some people just turned him into a god, but he was basically saying, this principle will bring harmony in your life. And it does. I kind of wish, you know, during the Crusades, in the Middle Ages, I wish the Christian the Christians would have learned a little meditation and and brought that into their studies a little bit more. So you know, for me, I don't know. I pick and choose, and I think it's so important for us to. I you know, I may have lost one third of your audience that follows you who are evangelical, but you know, I, I'm okay with that because I believe in you know, there's only one ultimate truth, and there's no way I know what that is. And, you know, and one, and, and one of the things that I've interpreted my judgment day of is that ultimate truth comes and somebody else's job is to bring that, that judgment. And I'm just going to live the best life that I can and loving the people around me and celebrating everybody for whatever they believe as well. So I don't know. Why don't, why don't you well, beat me up on that, Jess? No, no. I, I, uh, my biggest thing is I wish people would work harder on figuring out what they believe and then live it all the way. That's, that's, you know, I, I have my own beliefs, but but that's kind of my what I hope for others. You know, one, one thing I'd like to add to your list, though, I had a good friend mentor on the show recently named Chad Ford, who he runs the division of a university in Hawaii, runs their peace building program. His new book called Dangerous Love recently came out. And he's got a lot of experience both, you know, with with blacks and whites in South Africa, Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, but more than anything, working in Jewish communities and Palestinian communities in the Middle East. And it's just got such great stories. And like, it's, it's really kind of about radical honesty, if I could say anything, but it's, it's very much based on, on a lot of work where he and I met. So when I was CEO of my private equity fund, I'd got a CEO coach, it completely changed my life. So I started doing it for some other CEOs. And I've, you know, done that for 10 years now. And I got to spend a bunch of time with the firm that I had hired to teach me how to become a coach, the Arbinger Institute. And so I'd really recommend Chad's book, Dangerous Love, but the Arbinger Institute has this book called The Anatomy of Peace. And it's about a family who takes their daughter who had substance abuse issues to one of these wilderness centers. You know, they go in the desert for a month kind of thing. It is, I think, the most helpful book I've ever come across for specifically people in the situation that you, you're talking about with your son. I wonder if if uh, you'd you'd really you'd enjoy it. Like it would apply to every part of your life. Well, especially it's funny because when you said, "Oh, I've got one other thing I want to give you," I was wondering like what lever were you going to pull? Oh, yeah. And in my head, I thought maybe he's going to call nature oh. because I really do believe that being in community with nature, with what what God put on this planet around us is is probably one of the other great levers to pull in terms of equilibrium and and happiness for yourself and i don't know if that's what you were suggesting or not but that that seems very powerful i am a big fan i let my got my wife talked into letting me and the four kids and her move out to the woods we just built a house out on the side what of the state mountain. are you in what state uh, i'm just outside in? of park city utah and uh, it's it's pretty awesome we have moose in the backyard and 
I get a wow. snowmobile out the backyard up into it's the dangerous, you know, aren't they? Oh yeah. <laughs> you gotta stay away. But we have so much wildlife. I'm actually not too scared of the moose. We've had three cougars in the backyard this year though. So that was a little dicey when you've got a 10-year-old, right? But yeah, it's it's and been great your, actually. Your child will just go out and play in the backyard and there could be a cougar out there. <laughs> you, they're they're mostly at night. Do? What's that? It's it's crazy. There's actually never been a cougar attack in Utah, but I lived in California and Canada where there have been, so it still still freaks me out a little. Possibility. Yeah. Well, maybe the cougars in Utah are just better fed. Um, there there is an absurd amount of deer. I mean, it feels like you're in like a national park here. How many deer we have? Yeah. So I think they are very well. Can, I, can I go back to something earlier that? Yeah, yeah. Like, what, what, you mind telling me what religion you are? Yeah. So I go to the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints. Mormon, right? Yep. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's interesting. One of the challenges that I have in my faith is that I'm a gay man. And it was a it was a big problem growing up in blue collar southwestern Pennsylvania, where I couldn't have possibly, first of all, at the time it came out, right? So I didn't come out, first of all, when I was young. It just was wasn't a possibility. There was no there was no there was no correlation between being a normal successful human and having that those feelings and having those you know manifestations of your sexuality it just didn't exist there was nobody nobody that existed that was a positive role model in that space i mean this is way before you know politicians like barney frank were out or or ceos like the ceo of apple or or etc that just didn't exist so you sublimated it particularly because you know, your religion, you know, very clearly stated that it was an abomination, as many religions still do. And, you know, I didn't abandon my Christianity because of people's interpretation of that particular element. You know, and I'll be happy to go Bible for Bible verse and talk to folks about it. But what I had to come to the conclusion of is after all of the hard work trying not to be gay, which I, I you know, cry every Sunday at, at the pulpit, you know, with tears asking God to take this stuff away from me and and coming to a reconciliation of peace with what am I and who am I as a human that, you know, this God did not make me an abomination. Right. And, you know, again, and I know this is this is antithetical to some people's beliefs. And I think it's difficult as you, you know, as you and, and you mentioned about CEOs. I think there are some perceptions that religion and prejudice are correlated in some ways. I mean, it wasn't, I don't know what the core, what the, what the practices of your faith is on this issue, but it wasn't long ago that you all had practices that were, that were stated around African-Americans, right? In your church. So, I mean, it's like, it's difficult to imagine the, the, the full faith in quote religion when there are some wrongheaded things that over time we've seen overturned. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, I used to go to this really cool church in, in Los Angeles called Mosaic. And it was such a great church. It was so hip, so cool, so loving, you know, music and faith. And, and I, I thought, oh, this would be fun. I want to get rebaptized in this church. And then I started digging in a little bit. And I found that it was, a, it was a derivative of a particular, I think it was Baptist, but it was a derivative of a particular faith that absolutely felt differently about homosexuality and its place in, in society and, and, and the church. So it was difficult. It was just difficult. It's difficult to get your head around those incorrelations. And I never abandoned my faith. I just, I just segmented it away from some of the religious sects and some of the things that they believe for that reason. But, and by the way, it wasn't until the last couple of years that I would have even been willing to share that openly on a podcast because my, my view was I have a mission on this planet that God put me here for, and it's to help the world co-elevate. 
you know, I'm, I'm coaching governments now on how to help governments. I wrote a great piece I, I'm really proud of in Fast Company for the Biden cabinet about how they can begin to stitch together some of the divisiveness that's going on in Washington and get back on a, a more co-elevating path in government. I'm coaching a particular country leader that's tied to the Muslim world and looking to move more Western in some of their philosophies. And, and you know, what what I'm what I'm what I what I would have struggled with in the past was whether my authenticity and my transparency and my truth would have stood in my way of being of service. And so I hit it and I hit it even in the United States. In some instances where I was working for a CEO was I knew was very strongly religious Christian. And I just was fearful that it would stop him from hearing me for the work that I was doing. And but I finally figured out that I, I can't do that. I can't hide who I am and then preach authenticity in the workplace. So anyway, just an interesting side subject. You want to, you dare to dive into that one in the last five minutes? Well, I, I actually want to reserve the last five minutes because All right. so I want to get no. your, Go ahead. the answer is this. I, you know, I've been lucky enough to raise tens of millions of dollars. And, and uh, very often when I think, you know, we're at some phase of the business or one of our investment funds where I'm like, oh, we got to kick this. What am I going to do? Your book comes to mind. I'm like, oh, I need to quit eating lunch by myself. I need to, like your book literally comes to mind, like never eat alone. Oh yeah. And I, and I have my assistant start booking me lunches and it's just wild what happens from that. And like, you know, I, I would, I read in that book about the, you know, the, the dinners that you would have and you have Meg Ryan and the, this Catholic priest, and I'm sure I'm messing it up, but you know, you, you had like, you put such unique groups of people together and then you've gone on to write the books and all the articles that you've done and stuff. And to me, I really see that as such a advantage, like, you know, I want to get super rich and, you know, be like Warren Buffett and do the giving pledge and give my money to child rescue. Okay. Right. And, you know, there are other very wealthy investors who don't have the platform that Warren Buffett has because they don't take the time to teach. They don't take the time to be in the public. They don't take the time to write, you know? And so I think if I've only got five more minutes with Keith Ferrazzi, what I want to ask about is, as you think about folks who want to benefit from kind of some of the path you've laid out of writing and speaking and putting groups together, what's the principle? What's what's the advice you'd give me on, you know, because I'm sure you've some things been better yeah. than others and and what you'd yeah. what you'd say there. I think the first thing I would say is at the core of who you are, it needs to be a set of principles that you want to teach others. So codify them, brand them, and document them. It doesn't have to be so intimidating as the idea of writing a book. I'm just saying, you know, Jess, what are the four things you would teach? First of all, figure out who you want to teach. So I realized early on my pulpit, I wanted to be a preacher when I was a kid. And my dad said, don't you dare. I didn't, you know, spend all of this time and money to get you a good education to go be a preacher. You need to go make money. For whatever reason, I had that blocked. But I, but I, but I always committed. And, and so basically I find, found my pulpit. My pulpit is the workplace. I'm helping humans elevate, but I do it through the workplace and I do it through teams. And I'm really proud of that work. I want you to commit to an audience you want to transform. Entrepreneurs, business executives. It's care. entrepreneurs, for sure. Yeah. And then commit to what are the two or three things that you feel your brand represents that you want to give to them. How do you want to elevate them? What is, what is that make made up? And that two or three things become the methodology that you package and that you teach to. And you keep you write it down, you keep repeating it back. And then those two or three things will come into five things because you'll be like, oh no, this needs to be added. Well, this is really this and I'm going to combine the two. So spend your life building your methodology. Spend your life building your methodology. You don't have to get it perfect or right. I mean, my methodology when I wrote Never Read Alone was 
in Never Get Alone. As soon as I wrote that book, it was wrong. And I needed to write the next book. You know, but it doesn't have to be a book. Most books shouldn't be books. They should be articles. So, you know, write an article and have somebody else tell you, oh my God, there's so much there and keep adding to it until it becomes a book or until it's ready to be a book, right? And then just constantly, and then give it a name, give it a name and brand it. I've, I've had multiple names for what I, what I bring to the world. Co-elevation happens to be the culmination of it after all of these years as a methodology for transformation. I'm writing a new book right now about leadership in the post-pandemic world, and it's called Radical Adaptability. How do you make your organization radically adaptable? And it's another it's another brand, but I'm always giving a brand to the methodology. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you go out and you broadcast it, you know, you, you, you accept these things, you take opportunities to speak at your, 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 your synagogue or your church um, or your temple. You, you, you ask to go to the high school and be willing to share a little bit and you give a slightly augmented version of it for kids. You, you know, you, you just start building a platform. Yeah. And next thing you know, with more and more coaching, and the other thing I would do is I would hang out with people who have achieved a level of evangelization around their methodology more than you have. So you learn from them, you know, affiliate with with those individuals. I think that's probably a, a reasonable first few step methodology that I would give you. Yeah. Okay. I love it. I wrote some notes here. By the way, since being on the show, I, I did go to Coelevation and I typed in all the stuff so that I could get the original thing. Was right. the the first thing you brought up, was it the go go forward to work? Is that the one that you were talking about at so, first with the check-ins? No. So which, which one is eight, it? The eight methodology is the diagnostic. The okay. diagnostic. Is like with the, with the candor check-ins? With What's the candor check-in? The, the one with the candor check-ins. Is that? Yep. Yep. That's, that should be in the diagnostic. In the di- oh in the diagnostic okay okay let me just see oh start start the diagnostic there we go okay so Save I also just down. yeah I just I just found it so start the survey okay download the survey okay I just put on my calendar every day at four p.m. I I'm gonna start I'm gonna start doing that I I just wrote this thing so in the special ops guys world they call it hot washes it's like a quick after action review when it just happened before you do the formal one so yeah. but team hot wash coach have candor check ins and lead. I just book myself four to 5 p.m. every day. And just a quick hint with this world, give yourself an hour a day for review time. Block it in red. Block a, a block one hour a day where all you're going to do is read, think, think, you know, write stuff. There's got to be an hour a day where all of the things that somebody has asked you to read, this long email you haven't gotten to, don't take that stuff and squeeze it into your evenings and weekends. Give yourself a, a block of time every day for review time. Now, I take my whole Fridays. My Fridays are, I call them reading days. But it's not just reading. It's reading. It's writing. It's, you know, reading this strategy document that my sales team put together. It's 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 reviewing an article that's got to get into Forbes. It's whatever it is. It's the time when I'm not sh- jumping in and out of meetings, right? I take a whole day on Friday for that. But I think every day you should have an hour of review time. That would be an important part of your day as well. That's awesome. I, I have my Fridays booked out, but for the winter, I go snowmobile snowboarding on the Friday and then the other months of the year. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Okay. So with our last couple minutes here, I want to go back to your previous question that I didn't answer. So, you know, thinking about all the things you covered, if you were going to sum that up into one question, what what can I answer? About being the authentic self when it's scary, what, what is it? Are, are you asking me what I'm still curious about that Jess thinks? Yeah, yeah, that, that thing me? where you said, "Do you want to take this on for five minutes?" And I and I oh, went sideways. No, I, want to come no, back I was to just it. asking you, how as a Mormon do you reconcile the church's philosophy of LGBTQ and your own yeah. belief 
okay so that's a really tough one for me because i've got i have staff that are gay i have cousins that are gay i have friends that are gay right and and yet i guess i i i feel pretty darn similar to the leaders of our church who say we don't know we don't know like there's there's stuff in the scriptures but we know god loves all his children and I, I think, but also like my view of like, you know, what's the purpose of life and what happens after this life takes into that. Like my personal view is life is this big test and we're all, and like what happens at the end is not like, I'm not going to be judged based on Keith's rules or the Dalai Lama's rules. Like that God's going to, I'm going to like have this big meeting with the big guy in the sky and he's going to be like, okay, what choices did you make given the information I gave you? That's how I think. I think we're all getting graded individually. Interesting. And, and so like, you know, quite frankly, my mother-in-law, I love her. Sometimes she's a total pill. Okay. She is, she is recovering from years of some of the most horrific abuse any Uh humans have endured. Right. And she makes some mistakes. Shocker. She's a human like all of us. I genuinely in my heart think that her meeting with God at the end of this is going to go different than mine. I think that there's some, you know, like here's, here's one. I actually feel like, I don't share this a lot, but I feel like I've got like all the regular things of like, did you do what's right? Did you do what you actually thought you should do when you thought you should do it? I'm going to have all those. And I think I'm going to get an extra one. She's like, Hey, besides like the standard list, you know, that extra one, how I told you help, help relieve unnecessary suffering from kids who are being abused. How'd you do on that? Like I've tried to quit child rescue two different times in the last 10 years and I can't, my wife kind of jokes about it. It's like, it just needles me. Like you can't quit Jess. Like this, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so I just gave up on, I gave up on quitting and I think I'm going to be accountable for it. So uh, back to things in, in the background of, of our church, my, my one on that is it's just people like there's been no like deity physically on earth. None of these men have been a deity. Like I get, so we all have volunteer callings at our church. Like right now I teach activity days for 11 year old boys that my son is in. Okay. And we like this week we taught him bicycle maintenance. Okay. Well, I didn't get that from the finger of God on stone tablets. What to do with the boys this week. Like I'm doing the best I can. Guess what? I make mistakes. And my grandpas and great grandpas who've been in this church, some of them made mistakes. You know, I love my grandpa to death. He's my absolute hero. And he wasn't that stoked that my brother was marrying a black girl. He was like, you know, is this going to cause problems for your families? Is this going to be a lot of strife? Because he's putting it through his lens of when he was born in 1922, that would have been signing up for a lot of pain because of how society treated mixed race marriages in farm country, right? And in 19, you know, in 2006, when my brother's getting married, it's a different world. And I, I love almost every single thing about my grandpa. And I wish he would have been more open-minded about that. Yep. Yep. Great. I'm glad we were able to end with that kind of a transparent conversation, which I'm not sure many podcasts have. So congratulations on that. And I look forward (laughs) to staying in touch with you, Jess. Hey, I love it. Thanks everybody for listening.